Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, by remote connection. You, of course, are Aaron Lammer. I am Aaron Lammer. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, and on the show today, I talked to Hannah Dreyer, uh, who published that big Washington Post story about the way statements by um, minor migrants in detention uh, given to therapists was being used against them in uh, deportation cases. Uh, you probably know her from her uh, Pulitzer Prize winning work about MS-13 on Long Island in ProPublica. She's done tons of other interesting stuff also. I am very, very glad that she is uh, finally on the show. Those stories are so impressive. And every time I read one, I uh, spend the whole time thinking like, how did she get that? Uh, so hopefully you're going to like fill that all in in this interview, man. More on that soon. But before, I would be in remiss if I did not mention MailChimp, who make this show possible. Thanks, MailChimp. And now here's Aaron with Hannah Dreyer. Hello, Hannah Dreyer. Hi. So you've been covering the pipeline between Central America and America, like, um, how would you describe what you've been writing about? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is just covering how young Central American immigrants get totally crushed by the immigration system yep. in the Trump era. And that's taken a couple forms. I wrote about the crackdown on MS-13 on mm -hmm. Long Island and how that sort of became a way to just go after young Central American immigrants indiscriminately in the suburbs of New York. And then most recently I wrote about how therapy notes are being used against children who are in migrant child shelters. And like these really intimate confessions that kids make when they come across the border are then being turned and used against them in court. And you've written about this topic, I think across three different publishers at this point. Yeah, I was writing about this stuff for ProPublica, yeah. and ProPublica is the partnership model. So right. those stories ran with New York Magazine, This American Life, oh, and okay. one was a New York Times Magazine cover story. And now I'm at The Post, so I'm doing that sort of similar reporting for The Post. What? When did you start becoming interested in immigration as a topic? You know, it was actually assigned to me. I was working as a correspondent for the Associated Press in Venezuela, and the story in Venezuela had just gotten so brutal and it felt really unchanging. It sort of just felt like covering 
I don't know, it felt like misery porn day in and day out. And I wanted to come back to the States. And Trump had just won. And so everybody who I was talking to, like all the outlets I talked to, wanted me to cover immigration. And I pitched other things. I pitched like the role of the CIA abroad. I was totally not thinking immigration because I hadn't covered that. But I spoke Spanish and there was all this attention on on Trump's border wall. And so ProPublica put me on it. So starting doing stuff for the AP in Venezuela, like on what terms did you arrive in Venezuela and become a reporter within Venezuela? Well, I just really wanted to go abroad. So I had joined the AP a couple years before because I wanted to one day work as a foreign correspondent. And there's sort of two paths to do that. You can just move abroad and freelance or you can work for one of the few places in the US that has foreign correspondents still and just try to hustle within an organization. And I just never saw freelancing as an option. Like I think you need a lot of family support usually to do that because you move abroad and you don't have any connections and you sort of learn the craft abroad. So I went the other way and just tried to work my way up at the AP and they had two spots open. The AP had a Mexico spot and a Venezuela spot. And I sort of tried to figure out which of those two would be better. And in the end, I decided like Mexico, there's a lot of correspondence there. Venezuela, there aren't as many people covering it. And this was in 2014. So it seemed like Venezuela might be sort of teetering on the edge and might be about to go through some really dramatic changes. And over the course of a year, the economy just imploded. When you're in a situation like that, like I I don't know all the causes of the collapse in Venezuela, but there seem to be um, macroeconomic causes with the oil prices going down, obviously major political unrest, and also like at a street level, like a gang crisis that was causing people to flee the country. Coming as an outsider when you're less than a year in the place, like, how did you start to make sense of Venezuela? Well, I think that working for the Associated Press helped. I was the correspondent there, so I was on the hook for covering anything that happened in the country. And there would be days that I would write like three or four stories and you just get sort of thrown into it. Mm -hmm. So I was covering all of those developments. I was covering the oil crisis. I was covering the like diplomatic efforts to try to save the democracy there. And then I was also covering just the day-to-day shootings. And that was, you know, grueling, but really helpful because I sort of got this panoramic view of what was happening. And for me, the frustration in Venezuela became that we were all trying really hard writing these stories about the economic collapse and nobody was reading them. So when I was there, there was, I think, just one other gringo correspondent and then maybe like five or 10 other correspondents. It had gotten really hard to get credentialed in the country. And we were out there in hospitals and at protests where people were being killed Um, We were going to these remote towns, crossing over highways where they're like bandits at night. It all felt very dangerous and it all felt, and also our sources were taking big risks to talk to us. And then just nobody was reading our stuff. So it felt like a lot of effort and risk was being put on the table for almost no return. And I think that's really when I got into doing sort of more narrative journalism, just 
in an effort to try to get any attention on the humanitarian crisis there. How, how did you know that no one was reading your stuff or where, um, how do you even gauge something like that, I guess, when you're writing for an AP type source? I mean, sort of the same way I think you would in the States, like looking at Twitter, looking yeah. at... <laughs> I got zero Facebook comments. Yeah, I got zero comments, <laughs> yeah. zero pickup. Yeah. Um, people, when I would go back to the States like to visit, people still seemed to have no idea what was happening there. They thought everything was great and like Hugo Chavez was still in power, which, you know, he'd been dead for two years at that point. And... Yeah, the stories just didn't seem to break through into any other medium. Like you would put them on the AP wire and then they would just stay there. Thinking about one piece that you wrote for the AP then was, I think I guess the story probably takes over place over a pretty compressed period of time, but it's basically a story about a family where the daughter gets what would be in the United States, a minor injury, which leads to an infection, which leads to the family traversing the country, buying black market medicine and you know confronting the fact that their child has a good chance of dying from a infection that they got actually in the hospital and that's a pretty different kind of story than like a AP news hit that's like there are medicine shortages in Venezuelan hospitals which is the big story so when you made that jump to sort of doing the narrative stuff what did you find like does make people read so with that story, it wasn't the first time I tried to write about medical shortages in Venezuela. I had written a more standard story like you describe, you know, like 90% of medicine is impossible to find in Venezuela with an anecdotal lead and some statistics and then another yeah. little anecdote. And all the outlets had done that story, like the Times, Reuters, everybody that was still in the country had tried that. And those stories had just, you know, dropped without a trace. So my thought with writing this story was that there might be a way to get people to invest in one narrative about one specific person. And so my idea was to try to find a ticking clock. And every time you walked around the streets of Caracas, you would see these long, long lines of people who are looking for medicine for a sick relative in the hospital. And I thought that people would be most likely to read the story of a child because that's sort of the most, I don't know, naturally heart-wrenching kind of story. And I actually thought what we would probably end up doing would be a ticking clock story about a child who dies because most families don't find the medicine that they need. So I started going around to hospitals looking for this ideal character, like a child with a simple need who wasn't getting the medicine who was on death's door basically and in these pediatric ICUs I saw a few children die and I realized like that's going to be completely ethically monstrous to like really follow a family and then just stand by with, yeah. like crossed arms as their kid dies because of something I could easily get from the U.S. so we realized we couldn't do the story that way and instead I found this girl who had scraped her knee when she was playing and um her parents cleaned the wound, but it got infected anyway. And by the time I met her, the infection had spread all the way to her lungs and had eaten a hole in her lungs and um, was heading toward her brain. And it was, you know, I think maybe a month that she was in the hospital. And I would just go every day and visit her. 
and follow her family around as they tried to find these really simple antibiotics, like antibiotics from, I don't know, the 1950s. And it was hard because journalists aren't allowed in the hospital. Uh. And so every time I went in, I had to sneak in. Um, there are National Guard in Venezuela who keep out reporters. But I saw a lot of days where her parents weren't able to get the antibiotic and she just skipped her her dose. Where do you draw the line in a situation like that in terms of like being able to help someone? What kind of restrictions are there in terms of um, not just medical supplies, but like really being able to like change someone's life who is giving you access to a month of their life? It's so tricky. I mean, you're not allowed to change anything about the situation. So in the case of this girl, her name was Ashley. Me and my editor decided if she's really takes a turn for the worse, we'll scrap the story and we'll just get her the antibiotics she needs and we'll write about somebody else. But there's no middle ground. You can't help a little bit. Uh, We're going to reduce the word count and give her just a little bit of antibiotics. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just skip skip over that part. Um, But I did have a whole cabinet full of antibiotics in my home in Venezuela because I couldn't get them either if I needed them. And so at some point I'd gone to the States and just gotten prescriptions for every possible medicine. And so when I was writing that story about Ashley, I'd go to the hospital and sometimes I would hand out antibiotics to other families that I wasn't writing about because people would see that I was an American and just come up to me and start asking me for help. Everybody was also very hungry in the hospital. There wasn't enough food and they couldn't really leave the bedsides of these children. And so I would often bring food and I would give food to other people, but I couldn't help this one family. And yeah, I mean, it was a it was a bizarre feeling. And the family, thankfully, never brought it up. I don't know what I would have done if the family had just asked me directly for food or medicine or or money or any of the things I could have really easily given them, but couldn't because I was reporting on them. This is like a pretty abrupt zero to 60 in international reporting to be entering a place like Venezuela, both from an ethical perspective and also I would think just like a a personal safety perspective. What kind of instruction were you given and like what did you learn about operating in a place like that? I think I didn't really understand how dangerous Venezuela was when I went down there. I didn't know almost anything about it. I could barely put it on a map. Honestly, I just wanted to get out of the States and work abroad. And that was the place that was open. And I spoke Spanish. And I moved down there. And within a couple of days, somebody flashed a gun at me on the street. And I was so shocked. Like, I, that's exactly what you should expect to happen in Venezuela. It's the most violent country on earth still. But I sort of hadn't internalized that. So I was shocked. I ran home. I was like breathless. But then I started going to parties and I realized everybody who I talked to had been mugged or had been kidnapped or had definitely seen a gun. And everybody sort of talked about it in this very low-key sort of cocktail party way. And I just little by little started to totally lose my sense of, of what was actually dangerous, I think. And so by the time that I was mugged, um, it felt like no big deal. Like I was walking down the street in broad daylight. Two men came at me at a motorcycle, mugged me. And my thought when I saw them approaching was, oh, I wonder if these people are going to mug me because usually the thugs are on a motorcycle and I was alone. And then they did. 
And then I went um, to my bureau and told some people and they were like, oh, that was a really good mugging because they hadn't pulled a weapon on me. They hadn't kidnapped me. And so by that night, I was telling other people like, yeah, I was mugged. It was a great mugging. It's my first mugging. And I think you're just the longer you spend in a country where the level of violence is so pervasive that you just become numb to it. And that's what happened to me. So when I was reporting the story in the hospital, I was threatened in a stairwell. And I was also threatened by thugs once just coming into the hospital. And both times it just seemed totally normal. And I mean, I worried a lot for my sources because it was much more dangerous to be a Venezuelan in that environment than a foreigner. How did you find sources in a place that you had recently barely been able to find on the map? When I first got to Venezuela, I did a lot of silly stories. Like one of my first stories was about the secondhand breast implant market. Venezuela used to be known for beauty queens, and it's still a very beauty-oriented sort of consumerist culture. But because of all of the economic distortions, you couldn't find new breast implants when I got there. And so there were all these people on Craigslist, basically, buying breast implants and then going and getting them put in in like normal plastic surgery offices. And so I just sat all day in a plastic surgery office and talked to the women coming in. And they made a lot of fun of me because I was so new. But a story like that was very easy to do as a newcomer. And it sort of helped to be totally naive. And then when I'd been in Venezuela for a long time, I still used that card. I used that card until the day I left. Like, oh, I'm a gringa. Like, I don't know this country very well. I got to sort of lower my level of Spanish to like sound even dumber than, you know, I already am. And um, that's a card that worked a lot with like getting past guards and getting into places that were a little dicey. And then... I mean, people opened up. Like, I think people really wanted to tell their stories and felt like the world was ignoring what was happening there. So it wasn't hard to get people to talk. I think I did get smarter about protecting people. Like, in some of my early stories, I made mistakes that got people in trouble. And I got smarter about knowing when to not use somebody's name or not use where somebody lived, even if they didn't ask. Was that threat coming from the state? or coming from other civilians? Venezuela was just such a tense place. Everybody was sort of under threat by both the government and the thugs running the neighborhood. So I wrote a story inside of a elementary school, and I sort of talked my way past the principal and just hung out in the school all day. And it was another humanitarian crisis story. Basically, I was just watching kids like faint from hunger in their classrooms and hang around because the teachers were all waiting in food lines and it stopped coming. And to do that reporting, I really needed to be there just seeing what was happening. And the principal let me in. But when the story ran, she got in a huge amount of trouble from the government because she hadn't asked for permission. And the government was still trying to say that there was no hunger crisis in Venezuela. And then she also got in trouble, I think, from the thugs that run the neighborhood because she had talked about how she was dismissing the school at like noon or something so that kids could get home before dark. And that also was seen as telling secrets, I guess, in the press. So 
if I had done that story later, I think I would have maybe done more to anonymize the school and not use the school name. So these thugs in the neighborhood, like the gang culture that takes root in semi-failed Central American states. I don't is MS13 active in Venezuela? It's actually not. That was my that was kind of my guess. MS13 is more El Salvador. Yeah. And, yeah okay. MS13 is all around Central America. Venezuela, it's just chaotic like yeah. criminals for no reason. Like yeah. there's no organization. Yeah. And most of those gang groups, I guess originate from American prisons for the most part or have a lot of their organizational exactly. um foundations from that. When did you start covering MS-13? When I came back to the U.S., I came back just as Donald Trump was starting to talk about MS-13 in speeches. I think I moved back here the month that he went to Long Island and delivered a speech. And he said something about the parks of the Long Island suburbs becoming blood-soaked wastelands, like one of those really classic Trump evocative phrases. Yeah. And so I was looking around for stories and I went out there and I thought, oh, I know that MS-13 is actually a very small gang in the U.S. I know there's only 10,000 members and that number hasn't changed in decades. I bet there's a story to be done just sort of debunking this rhetoric. And when I got there, I started hearing something really different. And, you know, for me, it just underlined what I already know, which is that you can't come up with a good story idea in the office. Like, I've never had a really good idea um, that I just came up with out of thin air. It always comes from being on the ground. What did you need to do to understand what was going on with these gangs in Long Island, of which there aren't a tremendous number of people, but they do exert a pretty massive influence over, like, immigrant communities like the ones they operate in? Yeah, I mean, I was shocked by how much it is, just like what you say, it's like five people in a clubhouse, basically. In some of the towns on Long Island, it was just like 20 people in a high school who Mm -hmm. had decided to call themselves a clique, who they would ride their little like dirt bikes after school to the woods where they had painted naked women on the trees and they would just smoke blunts and talk about people who they wanted to kill. And then they would actually kill them, but they would be killed over things like, oh, you talked to my girlfriend in the halls, or we wanted you to join our gang, and you said that we were sissies, so now you're on our kill list. And what really helped me understand what that looked like was getting access to one of the gang members' entire Facebook and WhatsApp histories. So I was reporting sort of in the way that anybody would report, like talking to law enforcement, talking to former members and experts. But then I got this one kid's cell phone and I got like 2,000 pages of his messages with the gang leaders. And so that's how I wait, was- Wait, wait, I got to pause. How did you get his cell phone? <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was a kid who had already been detained. His name was Henry. And I talked to his immigration lawyer. I was talking to his immigration lawyer for another story about how schools were turning kids over to ICE. And the immigration lawyer mentioned one day, hey, I've got this case. It's so insane. I want to tell you about it, but there's no safe way you can ever write about it. And so I said, okay. And he told me the story of a 17-year-old who had been in the gang in El Salvador. He had fled to this country. The gang had found him again, made him join again. And he had told his teacher that he wanted to get out and he was really scared And his teacher had connected him to the FBI, and he'd become an FBI informant. 
and he told the FBI that everybody's gang nickname, what they were planning, what their legal status was. The FBI had used that information to make arrests, and then it turned Henry over to ICE. And ICE detained him and locked him up with the very people he'd just been informing on and put in his paperwork that he was an informant. So he was in an incredibly desperate situation when I met him. He was pretty much resigned to death, like he had been identified as a snitch. And he gave me permission to look through his phone. And so I copied it. And yeah, it just had sort of a handbook to MS-13 on Long Island. I'm the most familiar with Nuestra Familia, which is a, uh, a gang in California, incredible book um, called Blood in the Fields yeah. by a journalist named uh, Julia Reynolds. That's basically, there's like an original leadership of the gang that are all serving super max life terms, will never ever set foot outside of prison. And there's all these different layers between them and like, you know, actual teenagers like dealing small amounts of drugs. But it was just kind of incredible to see like these five guys and this massive life change impact they have on a bunch of 14 year olds in a farming town who will never meet them, like don't even know their real names, probably. These kids you meet in Long Island who, at least by in ISIS terms, are MS-13 members, like what is their actual connection to MS-13, this supposedly sprawling gang? No, I mean, it's just like that. And I think MS-13's leadership is even more diffuse and more sort of rinky-dink. Yeah. A couple years ago, this New York Times reporter, Debbie Sontag, did a story with El Faro, which is the main investigative news outlet in Central America, just showing how broke all the MS-13 leaders are. Like they're making, you know, maybe $100 a month, if yeah. that, from extortion. And on Long Island, those kids are even farther away from that whole structure. So it did seem like a franchise, like MS-13 is big and scary. And these are teenagers who, like any teenager, wants respect and feels like they're treated like a child, but really they're an adult. And talking to kids who had gotten out of the gang or who were trying to get out, it sounds like they joined because they just wanted to seem cool yeah. and to seem like they were someone and they were not getting instructions from El Salvador. You can see in their conversation, it's really stuff that's happening in high school. It's like teenage slights. But at the same time, on Long Island, this sort of like adolescent tough guy shtick ended up with more than a dozen teenagers killed and buried in the woods. So it's very serious on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's just absolutely ridiculous, like high school stuff. So you, you went out there sort of looking for this story in the wake of this Trump statements, and what you actually found was pretty dark. I mean, not necessarily the exact like Trump wasteland that you described, but like pretty serious murders. like. How do you sort of navigate the line between the fear-mongering that like comes out of these kinds of situations and the truth actually being pretty harrowing and brutal? I guess I wonder like how you see your work affecting people's perception of a gang like MS-13 and how you balance all of those tensions within the reporting. So I saw that series as about MS-13, but really 
pointing the finger toward local law enforcement. Yeah. So the stories went pretty deep into what it was like to be in MS-13. But for me, that was almost like a hook to get people to read about the actual accountability at the heart of the stories, which was all about the way that the local police were not taking this seriously and failing to stop murders. So on Long Island, MS-13 started killing teenagers. And within the police department, they had a phrase for these murders. They called them misdemeanor murders. Kids who were being killed who were probably gang-affiliated because they were Latino and they were young. And a lot of these these murder victims were not found for months. One of the kids, the first kid to be killed was a 15-year-old who was murdered. His body was buried in the woods. His mother knew instantly that something terrible had happened, but the police for eight months said that he had just run away. Yeah. And in the meantime, those same kids went and killed like five other young people. And so I wanted readers to <laughs> read the story to the end. And understand that this was a huge betrayal by law enforcement. And so, like for me, what I wanted to do was show the way that ICE and the FBI and local law enforcement were failing to protect Latino kids from a gang that was preying upon them. When you're reporting critically on the police, yet you need the police information to tell your story how, how do you walk that line like, i would think that early in the story you probably needed to rely on a lot of them talking to you to even understand where the investigation was so the long island stories were really three stories investigating three things right um one story was looking at the fbi and ice one story was looking at the schools and how the school system was working with ICE and one story is looking at the police and how they just abdicated their responsibility to investigate murders. And I was reporting them all simultaneously. Ah, which, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't recommend that necessarily. <laughs> it was very crazy making. Yeah. But... Did you intentionally set out to do three stories at once? No, I thought I would do one story and I just sort of was auditioning characters forever. And so I thought, okay, I'm figuring out which of these three characters is the character. What was the, like when you thought of it all as one story, what was the story going to be? It was going to be such a mess. It yeah. was going to be, I think I wanted to tell it. Okay, first you have to understand I'd never written a magazine story and I'd never written a story that was longer than 2,000 words, I don't think. But I had this idea that I would write a 10,000 word story in seasons so it would start with one character and then he would be like fall and then the next character would pick up in the winter and then the spring and i wrote a draft like that and it was just even to me totally incomprehensible <laughs> <laughs> so we broke it into three stories and yeah. it was much better that way but i had the benefit of sort of not being on anybody's radar as I was starting those stories and putting in those public records requests. And all the records I got were through FOIA or through local public records laws. Like, they never gave me anything willingly. Mm. But at the end of the reporting, the police department blocked my email address and wouldn't respond to anything. And if I put in a public records request, they would act like they hadn't gotten it. So it got even harder. But luckily, at the beginning, I think I read as like a some girl coming out there and they treated me like that and they gave me a lot of information. 
And then when the first story ran, they stopped talking to me. But by then it was sort of too late. By the end, when you were no longer under the radar, what were your entry points into that community? Like for the case of these students at Brentwood High who um, were murdered, like if law enforcement wasn't talking to you, um, I'm curious, like, like some of the scenes in it are like in the police station. So you're basically relying on the memories of the victim's family who were in the room with them there. Well, the police department wasn't talking to me, and they banned all the police officers from talking to me. But that doesn't mean that nobody was talking to me. Uh. So as the official police department shut down more and more, I started hearing from people within the department who wanted to talk, you know, talk on signal or meet in a field somewhere, meet five towns away in a Panera. And... Those people actually gave me information that was much more valuable, and they really put their jobs on the line to help me. And that's how we were able to confirm some of the things that these families were telling me. When you're cultivating someone like that, who asks who to share information? Are you saying, hey, I know your boss has told you not to do this, but like, I know a great Panera if you ever change your mind? <laughs> um, like, who who makes the first move in a source situation where the source could get in trouble? Ideally, I think it really goes through networks of sources. So the first person on the FBI task force who talked to me, I had reached out to him weeks before, and he hadn't gotten back to me. But then I talked to a friend of his who had retired, and the friend texted the FBI task force member and said, hey, talk to Hannah. She's going to text you in a minute. I was sitting in the friend's office as this happened. So the friend sent the text. I sent the text. The friend then sent another text to say, I know Hannah just texted you. Get back to her. And this FBI task force member did get back to me with a picture of the Starbucks that he wanted to meet at. He had screenshotted the address, and so I immediately left and started driving to the Starbucks, and then he called me on Signal and said, hey, I know you're almost there. Pull off right now at the next highway exit and keep going. I actually want to meet in this parking lot. And he had all of this sort of crazy spy craft that I would never have suggested. It's like you don't want to highlight to somebody that they are breaking all the rules by talking to you. So... I just sort of went along with him, but he always did something like that when we talked, and I tried to just not call attention to it and act like it was normal. But for other people, I just called them and they said, okay, cool, let's meet at a Starbucks, you know, or other people were much more low-key about meeting, and I also let them set the terms for that. Like, I was just trying to assume that people knew how many steps they had to take to protect their privacy. Did you feel in danger at all, like when you were reporting in within this community where there was clearly like multiple teenage murderers at large, probably responsible for the murder that you were investigating? Well, I started this reporting just as I got back from Venezuela. And one of the last things that happened to me in Venezuela is I was grabbed off the street by the secret police. And I thought that they were kidnapping me and they started joking about killing me. And it was not a great last episode there. And so when I got to the States, I think my barometer for danger was just totally out of whack. 
And so everything felt much, much safer. Like I sort of felt invincible when I was starting this reporting because like I wasn't going to get kidnapped out there. And so I did a lot of things like I would walk around the woods at dusk where these kids had been killed because I wanted to sort of get a sense of what it was like when they were being killed out there. When you said, uh, you know, meet in a field or in a Panera, I'd be like, I'd definitely take the Panera. I would not meet <laughs> in any woods on Long Island after reading this story. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in fields and woods in the yeah. dark yeah. initially. And when I talked to police officers, they would tell me not to do that. People offered to lend me their guns. People offered to go with me. And I just felt like it was fine. but. About halfway through the reporting, I realized, like, no, that was really dangerous and dumb, and I stopped doing that. But I kept doing things like showing up at gang members' houses to do door knocks um, or going to these neighborhoods really late at night because all the sources, like, worked three jobs during the day, and you could only sort of go out and talk to people at 10. Yeah. But that also probably wasn't ideal. Well, um, describe to me, like, door knocking a teenage gang member on Long Island. Like, what's your technique? What, how do you get someone to talk in that situation? I think my strategy is almost always to play dumb because it comes so naturally. <laughs> um, so I did door knock one of the people who was text messaging with this 15-year-old right before he was murdered mm -hmm. and who seemed to be involved in the murder. I found out where that kid lived and went and knocked on his door and a woman answered and said she didn't know anything about this. That family had moved away. And so I believed her and I left. And then I went back later just to, you know, check and see if any of the neighbors knew where that kid might have gone. And the neighbors were all like, oh, yeah, he lives in that house. That woman is his mom and he's right there on the street fixing a car. <laughs> And so I went up to the kid and I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find out about this murder. And the kid lied to me again. And the kid was like, no, I'm not that person. That's not my mom. This isn't my house. All of this reporting was just having teenagers lie to my face constantly. So eventually, you know, we got on the same page about who this kid was. And he told me a little bit of information that was helpful, but then he did say it wasn't safe for me to be where I was and people were watching us. And that was something I heard a lot. Like, there's a lot of eyes on us. Like, I don't yeah. like talking when everybody can see us. And at this point, I know that that's basically somebody say, I think, making a little bit of a threat. Yeah. But I never felt really in danger. I worried that me being there would put the people I was talking to in danger because it was easy for me to leave and go back to Brooklyn, which wasn't that far away, but it felt mostly far enough. But Latino teenagers on Long Island are in such danger that I did worry that even just being seen talking to a random reporter could be really serious for them. So... Actually, I don't really know that well how ProPublica works. Do you do like do you have a like ongoing contract at ProPublica, or do you sign on for a set of stories? Or so I was on staff at ProPublica. Okay, and it's one of the best jobs in the industry. You're on staff, but there are no real expectations about how often you're going to publish or what kind of story you'll publish. So in my case, I went, I think my first seven months without writing anything. And then I did this series of stories with magazines. 
What were those seven months where you were publishing zero things? Like, they were very anxiety-ridden. <laughs> did you have false starts? or No, I was just reporting all of these stories out at the same time. And I was waiting on documents to come back. And I wanted these to read like really intimate narratives. So I was doing a lot of those sort of narrative interviews where you sit with somebody all day and like people would sometimes cry through an entire interview. People would sometimes be flashing back and you sort of can't rush that kind of reporting or you can, but I think it's cruel to push people too hard when they're doing that kind of really grueling interviewing. So it just took a long time. And when those came out, did you have your AP, uh, no one's reading them moment or did it feel like they hit in a way? For me, it was more like the AP, am I even a human being if I'm not writing at least one story a day feeling? Yeah. So those seven months were not my favorite time in my life. Yeah. But once the story started coming out, it was really validating. It felt like when I had written the story about the girl who scraped her knee in Venezuela, where all of a sudden people were paying a lot of attention to an issue that had been written about before, but not in this way. So when the first story ran, I think it posted at like 3 a.m. And by the time I woke up at 6 a.m., I had hundreds of messages. Like it was a bigger response than anything I'd written. And almost immediately, we started seeing policy changes from ICE and from the local police department. And that first story was about a kid who had a deportation hearing the same week the story ran. That's sort of why we had to run the story. And, you know, thank God, because who knows how many months it would have taken us otherwise to get this out. Yeah. But it was a surreal experience. Like the story posted and I was mobbed with response. And then the next day I went into the courtroom to see what would happen in this deportation hearing. And there were copies of the magazine on the judge's bench and ICE had brought in a copy and they were quoting directly from the article and the whole case sort of got put on hold until they could, the judge could hear from all the sources in the story. So pretty much from the beginning, it felt like the stories were having the impact we wanted them to have. It was just scary to gamble that much time on the stories hitting. This most recent um, piece you have out, this was your first big feature for the Post? Yeah. Um, like, what did the story look like when it came to you? What were you thinking you were going to set out to do here? Well, I thought it might be nice to take a break from the sort of reporting that feels like punching someone in the face. <laughs> I think that's really important, but yep. it's not my natural personality type. Like, I'm not the kind of person who just really gets pleasure from taking someone down. And I thought it might be good to do something a little more featurey. And I was interested in what it's like for therapists who are working in migrant child detention centers and trying to help kids who come across the border with such complex trauma. But I started hearing from immigration lawyers that they were seeing cases in court where ICE was using therapy notes against young people. And that seemed like such a violation of confidentiality and everything we know about therapy that I felt like somebody had to write that story. Was that like a known fact? Like when you started this story, would anyone even confirm with you that this 
was happening? No, and I was very skeptical that it was happening. I felt like, well, somebody's going to know if this is really going on and probably, you know, the American Psychological Association or somebody has already figured this out. But it's so insidious. Nobody knew because the system that takes care of migrant children is separate from the system that deports them. So ICE is using these therapy notes in court, but the therapists are working for the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a separate agency. And the therapists totally lose track of the kids when they leave the shelters. So at first I thought this isn't happening. And then when I saw that it was happening, I thought these therapists, what kind of deals are they making with themselves to do this? It turned out that the therapists really, for the most part, had no idea that this was happening. And the therapist in the case that we focused on, she resigned after the story ran because she really didn't know that this is how her notes were being used. Well, it seems like one of those complex systems that for anyone who's sitting in one position, they're probably not aware of all of the like moving pieces of the system. So for you as a reporter, um, figuring out, oh, these people don't even know that their notes are being used somewhere else down the line. How did you start to reconstruct that flow of data and people? Well, I initially thought it might make sense to give this story to somebody on the investigative team. Like I was just burned out <laughs> writing these really, really sad stories about teenagers in detention centers. And I thought it might make sense to just hand it off, but ultimately I decided to try to do it myself in part because I wanted to see if there was a way to do it all through one case and make it into a narrative. And I heard about a lot of cases that didn't have the paperwork behind them. So I believed that these things happened, but they weren't fully documented. But then I heard about a case of a kid who had told a therapist something one day after he crossed the border and then had that statement used in like six ICE filings over the course of three years. And that kid was still detained. So to me, that was sort of maximum harm. Like what's the worst thing that can happen if you tell a therapist something in confidence and that confidence is betrayed? is that you're going to be locked up and like never get to even see this country. Hmm. And once I had that example, everything sort of fell into place easily. But my experience with all of these stories is that the hardest part is figuring out who you're going to write about. And you go down a lot of dead ends. Like with this story, I talked to at least three other kids who had had their asylum cases denied because of things they said in therapy. And then decided that they weren't strong or I couldn't fully, fully document them. And I think that's very strange for the kids and for the lawyers. Like, yeah. I always feel so queasy about that. Yeah. Do you, like, how do you approach someone and say, I want to know everything about you to maybe write about it? <laughs> yeah. People never hear the last part. Yeah. The worst was, I mean, it's always terrible. But on Long Island, I talked to the, every parent who had had a child killed by the gang. So that was maybe 15 parents. And I did real interviews with them. A lot of them were crying through the interviews. Like it seemed cathartic for them. I think they were glad to have somebody care. But in the end, we only wrote about one of those parents. 
And I still think about the other ones, like nobody's written their stories and probably nobody ever will. And I always try to explain in a way that doesn't sound like I'm seeing them as complete commodities, but I, I mean, I always feel guilty about it. Is it more the person that you're looking for, or is it more the details of the situation and sort of access? Like when you're auditioning, like what's, what's important, what's important <laughs> in an audition? Um, for me, I always go back to, to Catherine Boo's stories. I feel like she writes about people being acted upon by the system in the correct way. And her characters always have a lot of agency and read as real people, not victims. And that's what I try to do. So for me, the most important thing is to find somebody who can be like a proactive person within the story. So I report toward people who are making their own choices. Like that's one reason I liked writing about Henry, who was trying to get out of the gang MS-13 and became an FBI informant. Even though by the time I met him, he was totally a victim. Like he was sort of marching toward death and very scared and out of options. But I liked that he'd made this really bold decision to become an informant. Like I thought that would, I don't know, it just sort of helps me to write about people in a way that doesn't seem disrespectful. So yeah, so I look for people who are sort of active <laughs> and making choices. And then I look for people who have receipts, like people who have actual paperwork or who I can FOIA paperwork for to show that what they say happened really happened. This last story about the young man who has been detained because of what he said in therapy, I didn't have to do that much FOIAing because his lawyers had done a lot of it. And the deal they made was like, I got to see his whole case file. So a whole trunk worth of documents. I think in that case, it was so important to be able to see every single thing because we we're going to be making some really strong statements about what had happened in the case. And I didn't want to find out that some key piece of evidence had been hidden from me by the lawyers. So I sort of had to see everything. Yeah, I was thinking about how your story tells his story and you're confirming the events that led him into an immigration nightmare, which was for people listening, basically not being a active gang member, but being sort of an involuntary uh, drug lookout and participating in beatings and that kind of thing. Was that a concern for you at all? Or like what, how, how does ICE look at someone in that situation that's in sort of a dual like victim quasi perpetrator? Yeah, I mean, what's crazy about his case is that he's been certified as a victim of severe human trafficking by the Department of Health and Human Services, and he's been granted asylum by a judge. So it's like one part of the government is saying, oh, he's a total victim. He was forced to do this. He was essentially a slave of the gang, which moved into his house when he was 12 and made him start running errands. And then ICE is saying, we don't care about that. The fact is he sold drugs. And if you sell drugs, you're a drug dealer and a criminal and you have to go. And so I didn't want to take a side. Yeah. Because what do you do with that? It's like maybe he's both a victim and a drug dealer like that. You sort of can be both of those, I guess. And so what we did in the story is we just quoted extensively from this therapist's report. So this kid tells a therapist, my parents abandoned me and my grandmother beat me and then she died and the gang took over my house. 
And we just basically quote that all from the report. And that way I didn't have to be vouching really for the truth of any of that. It's just we're reporting what he said and how those words were used and then reused and reused. And that made me feel a little insulated. And then we'll see what happens in the case. A judge just granted him release again. And what's been happening in this case is a judge keeps ordering him released and ICE keeps appealing. So we'll see. ICE, I think, is deciding right now what they're going to do. Yeah, ICE is one of the most unusual organizations in American government. Like I, sometimes I feel like like um, American governmental agencies. Some of them seem like ancient and like they've been kind of like running on autopilot for the last hundred years. And ICE is one of those agencies that seems like the policy could change any day at any totally. possible moment. For someone who wants to report in that environment, like what have you learned about? reporting on a governmental agency that is not really like the FBI or something like that, where there's pretty rigid hierarchy structure, transparency rules, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, from ICE's perspective, they're just doing what the president tells them to do. Yeah. And so ICE, whenever I talk to an ICE attorney, they're always like, well, if you don't like this, Congress needs to do something. Like, what are we supposed to do? It's an adversarial justice system. So... In this case, I did talk to the ICE lawyer who was arguing against this kid. And he says, well, if we have the therapy notes, we have to use them. We're ICE. Like, that's our job. Don't give us these notes if you don't want them used in court. Right. And that's sort of the attitude I've mostly encountered with ICE. I think that's one reason I like reporting around the agency. So I've been reporting about how schools turn kids over to ICE or how local police departments have sort of deputize themselves as ICE agents. ICE itself right now, their mandate is to aggressively pursue all cases where somebody can be deported, especially if that person has any kind of criminal history. And I mean, that's how immigration policy works. Like there's deadlock in Congress. And so the president gets to sort of decide what happens. And this president is very focused on deporting people. What's it like living in Washington in this climate? Like you're now in the uh, belly of uh, the beast, the Congress that is not uh, fixing this problem. I mean, I sort of feel like I barely live in D.C. in that way. Like I'm not covering the presidency. I'm not following the campaign that closely. These stories just get so intimate. I feel more like if I was living anywhere with this last story, it was like a detention center in rural Virginia. The actual reporting is just like talking to an immigrant teenager every day on the phone from a detention center. It's not going down the halls of Congress, like asking people what they're going to do. Now that this last story is out and professional organizations are working to lobby people on the Hill, it feels a little bit more like that. But I'm hoping that'll just be like a week of my life and then I can go back to doing the kind of off the beaten track reporting I like to do. So this whole era of your life starts with you basically wanting to go abroad and ending up in Venezuela. Um, Now you're reporting from Washington. Where do you go from here? What interests you? Do you want to stay with immigration or do you want to start all over again? I want to start all over again. For me, the times in my life that I've learned the fastest and gotten better have been the times where I felt most at sea 
and ignorant. And that's sort of a feeling that I crave at this point. Yeah. And I intended to stop reporting on immigration, but then I just felt like somebody had to do this last story. But, you know, I'm hoping that doesn't happen again because I really <laughs> want to look at something else. Yeah. But I want to continue doing this kind of narrative work. Like, I think I, if I could have anything, it would be to stick with the form, but maybe explore a different topic for a while. We didn't really talk about what you were doing before you started reporting, but like what what led you? Was this like an intentional life decision to become a narrative nonfiction reporter or do you feel like you backed into it? I really don't think I knew about narrative nonfiction until I started listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish I could say like, oh yeah. Right. I feel like that's both a, a compliment and I now realize just shows how old I am that like <laughs> people's entire career has taken place during the run of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm definitely one of those people who got into journalism with no training and then listened to every episode of this podcast and got some footing. But I don't know. I graduated in 2008 and tried to get into reporting at sort of the worst time. And it's really demoralizing to try to get into reporting without the financial support to be able to do an unpaid internship yeah. or freelance or go to J school. And None of those were options for me. So I was lucky to get a paid internship at a regional daily at the San Jose Mercury News. Shout out to the Mercury News. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was great. It was great training. They trained me up. I didn't know anything when I started. And they put me in a small town covering like the city council meeting. I don't know if those jobs still exist, but... I went in way too aggressive and alienated everybody in this town and they everybody complained and the paper had to move me to a slightly bigger town. Wow. Wait, then, uh, wait I got to pause on this. What are we talking about? Ag aggressive. Like you were like um, shoving a notebook in people's faces at the city council meeting. Yeah, I think I had just watched too much TV or too much cable news and I thought reporters were supposed to go in and, you know, take everyone down. Yeah. So I wrote these. Now I'd say sort of over-the-top stories about, you know, like a wife who was trying to appoint her husband to a regional planning board. Oh, yeah. You were seeking out corruption at the lowest level. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And nobody had done that for this town. So there was a lot of really minor stuff to yeah. write really, you know, hyperbolic stories about. So they didn't like that. And I got moved. And then the same thing happened in the next town. And I went through three towns with this paper. What like what did they say to you in there? Like you've been recalled. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of feel like you're go doing a good job if you're pissing off all the people in the town. Yeah, I mean, the, I was never told to stop. I was just told like, now you're going to be covering Richmond, California instead. Yeah. Your your cover's blown in <laughs> Salinas from now on. Exactly. Um, wow. Okay, that that's the first I've heard of someone being moved to a new. Yeah, town. it's the slash and burn style. I don't. Yeah. Super recommend. Although it was. Every town was sort of better and closer to where I lived, so that was good. And so I started as an intern. I got hired. I got moved to like a semi-respectable job. But I think in part because I never went to journalism school, I was always just looking for editors who I thought were going to challenge me. And I decided that I wanted to try to work for a national outlet. And so I quit that job and took an internship with the Associated Press. 
And everybody told me I was crazy. Like people were really shocked. The people at the paper, some of the people at the paper said I was going to fail. It was like very wow. wrenching choice. Intense. Yeah. I think it just didn't make any sense to like leave a newspaper job and go to a temporary internship job. And yeah, then I sort of did the same thing at AP. Like I started covering California politics and then moved to Nevada to be the national gambling correspondent. That's really? a hot beat. I would take that beat. In a oh, second. yeah. <laughs> it was the only game in town in Las Vegas. Yeah. It was super silly. It was like covering Britney Spears' residency. Nobody ever complained to my editors. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can come in too hot when, in Vegas. There's used to people going for it there. But I do feel like if you're broke or if you have student loans, like the one thing that you can do in this industry is just be willing to move anywhere. And I think that is what really helped me and sort of saved me and like let me have the career that I wanted, even though I couldn't do some of the more luxurious things to get a foot in the door. I could at least move to Las Vegas and be happy about it. Was that like strange? Like I, I've never asked this question before, but you seem open about it. So I'm just going to go for it. Like, you know, you're working at these sort of entry level uh, reporting jobs. And as you said, most of the people who can afford to do that are people who like went through the like unpaid internship or like J school. Like I think it's just interesting in reporting because you're kind of in this weird truth medium, but there's this unspoken like class economic thing within the like profession itself, which is that like some people come in in a very different manner than other people. Yeah. I mean, I wish that this was talked about more we have so many diversity problems in journalism, but this is one also. And in my case, I feel like it made it harder to start out in journalism. But now I feel like my background makes it easier to do the kind of journalism I want to do. So I grew up with a single mom getting evicted in San Francisco in sort of the kind of childhood that I think sometimes gets written about in newspapers as like hard scrabble yeah. and like saintly people just like fighting against the system. But my own experience of that childhood was like we weren't some kind of Dickensian victims. Like sometimes money was an issue, but me and my mom were like funny and like silly and I was like a bratty kid, <laughs> like I'm sure <laughs> – and sometimes we made bad choices that were just our choices and not like the system acting upon us. And I think there's this trend in all journalism to write about people who aren't solidly middle class as if they're just like one dimensional victims. Yeah. And I try really hard not to do that. Like that's one reason I look for people who seem like they're acting in a proactive way. And one reason I really like Anne Hull and Eli Saslow and people who write with a lot of, I think, like humor about families that are struggling in some way. And so now I feel like I'm able to write those stories in a way that feels like true. And I'm really happy to be able to do that. Thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Hannah Dreyer for coming in. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. 
Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Marina Clementi. This show is made possible by MailChimp and Pit Writers and all of the listeners out there. Thank you to them. Thank you to everyone. We'll be back next week.